0: Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories in science. Our lead story today is that the CDC the Center for Disease Control, issued a new guidelines concerning masks. You don't have to wear them if you are fully vaccinated. And if you obey state laws and avoid transportation on airplanes and trains, then, yes, you have the blessing of the CDC to take off your mask. But some epidemiologists are saying, wait a minute. Is the CDC swinging in the other direction like a pendulum? This calls into question whether or not we really have turned the corner on the coronavirus, given the fact that only 36% of the U.S. population has been fully vaccinated. And also, once again, there's a controversy concerning where the coronavirus really came from. The World Health Organization, the WHO, said it's a settled question. It came from Mother Nature. But a few months ago, a group of epidemiologists and scientists said not so fast. This is not the complete story at all. And now, recently, just this month, yet another group of scientists are echoing the same criticism that the WHO report falls far short of giving a conclusive verdict on where the virus came from. And this new report says that maybe, Just maybe it came from a laboratory in China. So we'll talk about that controversy. And then also we'll say a few things about, well, the WHO, is it swinging in the other direction? Remember in the early days of the pandemic, the WHO said you do not need to wear masks, period. You don't have to wear masks because masks are required for the first responders. Well, then it swung the other way and said that, yes, masks have to be worn by everyone. But scientists began to say that it's aerosols, airborne aerosols, that is the main way the virus is spreading, not through touching contaminated surfaces and things like that. No, scientists said the main way that the virus spread is through airborne contact. And the airborne contact could mean, The virus has been in the air for hours, and much farther than six feet can it spread. Well, now the WHO finally admitted that yes, the scientists are right, that six feet is only a recommendation. Get away as far as you can, in fact, because airborne aerosols can cause the proliferation of the virus much more rapidly than previously thought. And then we're going to say some things about outer space. First of all, the Chinese got a lot of flack for the Long March booster rocket, which burned up in the atmosphere, but it was like Russian roulette as to where it was going to land. Fortunately, it landed in the Indian Ocean and was not in a populated area. But some people are saying that the Chinese are careless, or maybe they're rushing to have a presence in outer space and thereby endangering people on the planet Earth. Also, we should congratulate the Chinese because they successfully placed a probe on the surface of Mars. That means that they are only the second nation ever to be able to have a soft landing on the Martian surface, so congratulations for that. Also, the United States landed on an asteroid, and was able to scoop up asteroid material. The project is called OSIRIS-REx, and now OSIRIS-REx is on its way back to the planet Earth with an extraterrestrial payload. That is, scooping up dirt and debris and dust from an asteroid will give us insight not only as to the origin of the solar system, but also give us a clue as to, well, How dangerous are asteroids anyway? And also, speaking about congratulations, we have to congratulate once again SpaceX. This time they fired their Starship rocket and it landed successfully on the planet Earth. That Starship is a rather very important experimental rocket because that's actually a moon rocket and a Mars rocket. That's right. SpaceX is already setting its sights for the planet Mars And this was a tremendous victory for SpaceX, the fact that they were able to safely reuse that rocket, safely land that rocket back where it first took off. Well, those are some of the big stories of the past week, but let me also say this, and I'd like to say thank you for all those people who picked up a copy of my latest book. Now it's a national bestseller, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. And I got some comments and some suggestions. Quite a few people said, well, that's great, your book is very readable, very exciting, but of what practical use can it have for the average person? Well, just remember that every time a force was unraveled, it changed human history. When Isaac Newton worked out the forces of gravity and mechanics, that laid the foundation for the machine age, All of a sudden, we had locomotives, steam engines. All of a sudden, we were able to crisscross continents with our machines. So in other words, the harnessing of the laws of gravity and mechanics set into motion the greatest revolution in human history, the Industrial Revolution. And then when Faraday and Maxwell worked out electromagnetism, that ushered in the Electric Age, So all of a sudden, we had light bulbs, not to mention radio, television, communications, dynamos, generators, all because the electromagnetic force was worked out. And then Einstein, of course, worked out E equals mc squared and the nuclear force. And with quantum mechanics, we were able to harness the power of computers and transistors and lasers. So every time a force was unraveled, history was changed. Now, of course, we're talking about Unraveling the mother of all forces, that is, the God equation, the unified field theory that eluded Einstein for the last 30 years of his life. But of what practical importance is the theory of everything? In the short term, nothing. Because we are talking about universes. Each solution of the God equation is an entire universe. As a consequence, we don't have enough energy to create a black hole, enough energy to tinker with the Big Bang. But that's precisely it. This theory will give us answers to the deepest secrets of the universe itself. What happened before the Big Bang? Is there a white hole on the other side of a black hole? Is time travel possible? Are there other dimensions? Are there other universes? None of these questions can be answered using ordinary quantum theory or general relativity. To answer these age-old philosophical questions about the universe itself, you need a theory of everything. Also, we should point out that the universe is dying. That's right. In the future, trillions of years from now, the universe will be so cold, it'll be near freezing, and intelligent life will not be able to survive when the temperature plunges near absolute zero. At that point, physics seems to have a death warrant for all intelligent life. But there's a practical application to the God Equation. The God Equation may allow us to create wormholes, gateways, tunnels through space and time so that we may be able to escape to a warmer universe, a younger universe, And then, perhaps, we can start all over again, and of course, mess up that universe as well. So then we'll have two universes to mess up. Well, anyway, to find out more about these cosmic questions, pick up a copy of my latest book, now a national bestseller, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. Some people say that the CDC is swinging in the wrong direction. In the early days, the CDC said masks were not necessary because first responders and nurses and medical personnel needed the masks, not you. Then it switched and it had mandated masks, but the masks were only good for six feet. And after that, it was okay. However, scientists said no. Scientists said that actual experimentations show that it is aerosols that are airborne, too small to be seen, that can travel much farther than six feet, And also, it's indoor transmission that's the main transmission, not necessarily dirty hands and washing everything around you. Of course, it can't hurt to wash your hands. It can't hurt to wipe down everything. But that's not where most of the transmission takes place. Most of the transmission takes place indoors. When you talk to people, when the virus spreads indoors with very little ventilation and much farther than six feet will it spread. Well, now finally, after a year of denying this, the CDC finally said yes, okay, scientists are right, that it is indoor aerosol transmission that is the dominant way that virus spreads. Not necessarily spending all your time and effort and energy wiping down surfaces and washing your hands, which of course can't hurt. It can only help. But the main effort has to be to restrict indoor transmission of aerosols. And if you want to know how far aerosols can spread, just get a bottle of perfume, and spray your room with it, and you'd be shocked. You'd be shocked how far perfume can spread. Also, the CDC has issued a statement saying masks are no longer necessary, indoors or outdoors, for those individuals who are fully vaccinated. However, a lot of epidemiologists are saying, I don't know about this. In fact, some epidemiologists are saying that it may take another six months to a year because only 36% of the population is fully vaccinated, we are nowhere near as herd immunity. The virus is still out there, and it's premature to say that you can throw away the mask. And you only have to obey certain restrictions. That is, watch out if you're on an airplane, on public transportation, or if you bump up against state laws. But other than that, the CDC said, throw away those masks if you are fully vaccinated. Well, you have to be very careful about that. Recently, the New York Yankees, eight baseball players, came down uh, with the virus, even though they were fully vaccinated. And also, a commentator at HBO had to cancel his show because he came down with the virus. He was tested positive, even though he was fully vaccinated. So what's happening here? Well, that's why people are saying, watch out, don't throw away your masks yet. First of all, the Yankees got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is only between 60 to 70% effective. The Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, on the other hand, are 94 to 95% effective. What does that mean? That means that it's a luck of the draw. Some people are going to come down with the virus even though they are fully vaccinated. Now, to be fair, we should mention that the Yankee players are asymptomatic. That is, they didn't know they had it. It surfaced when they were tested. And that's how we figured it out. But you have to realize that, yes, some people will come down with the virus, especially those that had the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. But the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine seem to be up to 95% effective. So things will happen. It's not 100%. So that's why you should still think about keeping that mask even though you are fully vaccinated. And then the question is, where did the virus come from anyway? Oh, about six months ago, we reported that a group of scientists signed a letter stating that they're simply not convinced that the Chinese denials carry scientific weight. And, well... Scientists were able to visit the laboratory, and then a new report was issued by the WHO, once again exonerating the Chinese. But this time, yet another group of scientists are again saying the same thing. Wait a minute. Something is fishy. First of all, the scientists who went to China and visited Wuhan, they visited the Biological Warfare Laboratory in in Wuhan, but they were not allowed to go inside and interview the scientists and conduct an investigation. They simply were tourists, tourists. They simply went there, perhaps took a few pictures and that was it. And so this second letter, scientists are saying this is not the way science is done. It ruins the credibility of science when political pressure can trump sound scientific advice. In other words, you have to have an impartial group of scientists visit the laboratory, inspect the equipment, look at the data, and talk to the individuals involved, not simply be tourists, and simply go there, take a few pictures, and come home and say that you got uh, you can clear the Chinese of any responsibility for the virus. Now, chances are, it did come from the environment. However, you have to notice some astonishing coincidences. First of all, in Wuhan, where the virus started, we have not one, but two, two biological centers that investigate germ warfare and diseases. Second of all, the bat, the bat that's been implicated as the the messenger for the virus does not exist naturally in wuhan the bats were imported from yunnan province that's where the bats are hundreds of miles away and so people are saying if the horseshoe bat was responsible for carrying the virus and the horseshoe bat is hundreds of miles away in yunnan province then how the hell did it get to wuhan And the answer is, well, it was brought to Wuhan by scientists who study the viruses, and people are saying, aha, so there is a link. Of course, it's not conclusive. No one is saying that the Chinese deliberately or even accidentally spread the virus, but it just means that you cannot trust the report that came out that exonerated the Chinese, given the fact that scientists were not allowed to investigate to interview scientists, to inspect the laboratories, and do the necessary homework to settle this issue once and for all. Next, let's say a few things about outer space. Last week, the whole planet was gripped with the news that a gigantic booster rocket, 100 feet long, weighing 20 tons, enough, uh, weighing enough to balance 20 cars, and being bigger than an 18-wheeler truck, traveling at 18,000 miles per hour from outer space, and it would land someplace on the planet Earth. Now, 70% of the surface of the Earth is water. Therefore, chances are it would land in water, but sometimes it lands on people's backyard. You know, last year, the Chinese had an identical problem. They had another Long March booster rocket that was that spun out of control. It landed in the, the Atlantic Ocean and also in Africa. Debris landed on a village in the Ivory Coast of Africa. Fortunately, no one died, but it does mean that the Chinese are careless when it comes to taking care of their space debris. Now, the West, 30 years ago, used to allow booster rockets to fall into the ocean and who knows, who cares where they landed. However, in the last 30 years, the great powers have informally decided that it's simply too dangerous, you get bad publicity, and you might actually hurt somebody. So what they do is they put small rockets on their boosters to deliberately send them into the ocean at a specified site. That's the reason why, for payloads beyond 10 tons, we have never had an incident of uncontrolled tumbling of a space probe coming back to the planet Earth. So, why did the Chinese do it? Why did they get so careless? Well, realize that the Chinese government is playing catch-up to the United States and Russia. They are a few decades behind, quite frankly, and they are methodically, methodically, step-by-step, following the historic march of the Russian and the United States space program. And quite frankly, 30 years ago, the great powers would dump their garbage uh, in the oceans and they didn't care where it landed. For example, in 1979, Skylab came down from outer space, an American satellite that weighed 76 tons, and it landed in Australia and part of the Pacific Ocean. And then the, the Russians, a year before, had a nuclear reactor on board Cosmos 954, and that reactor spun out of control, burned up in the atmosphere, and crashed into northern Canada. It contaminated several hundred square miles of Canadian real estate, caused quite a bit of panic, because it was weapons-grade U-235 that was sprayed out over the tundra of Canada, and I still remember, I still remember the CIA hurriedly getting huskies to try to retrieve as much as they could of a Soviet nuclear reactor that came tumbling down from outer space. Well, let's hope that those days are over. Also, congratulations are due. The Chinese successfully landed a probe on Mars. They are the second nation in history to attain this remarkable feat, the United States being, of course, the first with several payloads that have landed on Mars. But the Chinese did it, a probe that successfully executed a soft landing on Mars. And once again, they are methodically following the West. This latest Mars mission is actually interesting because it was a three-in-one shot. The West, for example, the United States first put an orbiter around Mars, then they landed on Mars, and then they put a rover on Mars. Well, the Chinese did all three in one. That's right. In this shot, it was an orbiter that orbited around Mars. It jettisoned a lander. And so, in other words, the, the Chinese have a three-in-one shot because, quite frankly, they are in a rush. And also, speaking about outer space, NASA scored a coup. It turns out that the space probe called OSIRIS-REx successfully landed on an asteroid called Bennu, scooped up asteroid material and debris, and is on its way back home. This is a first for the United States, the first time we've been able to actually scoop asteroid material and bring it back to Earth. Now, why is that important? Well, for several reasons. First of all, some people think that eventually this could lead to mining the asteroids. Asteroids are rich, they think, in platinum. And as a consequence, NASA is saying that that's a definite possibility one day of commercially mining the asteroid belt. Second of all, asteroids are potentially dangerous. We want to know what they're made of, what their consistency is like, because one day an asteroid may come plowing into the Earth's atmosphere threatening life as we know it. And also, asteroid material dates back to the formation of the solar system. And so we get a sneak preview as to what happened, what happened uh, 5 billion years ago when the solar system began to condense. And so, Osiris rex has made history. It's uh, Once again, it's a NASA probe that was launched several years ago intercepted an asteroid, landed on the asteroid, scooped up materials, and then took off. And it's now on its way back to the planet Earth. And also, speaking about congratulations, we should extend congratulations to SpaceX. Once again, they have scored another first. You see, SpaceX is not just building a moon rocket. They are building a Mars rocket. That Mars rocket um, is called Starship, and it had four unsuccessful tests recently, uh, rather embarrassing because these tests were then broadcast on national television, but on the fifth try, they did it. On the fifth try, the Starship rocket went up, turned around, and came back and landed exactly where it was supposed to, and that is historic. Because in the future, perhaps all rockets will be reusable. And that'll drop down the cost of space travel. And this rocket is different. It's a Mars rocket. Now, why is that important? Because it's a Mars rocket designed to take astronauts to the Red Planet. Now, there are two groups of people that are shooting for Mars. One, we have NASA. NASA seems to be backing the Boeing SLS booster rocket, so their timetable is first go to the moon, then build a lunar orbiter around the moon, and then in outer space construct a Mars rocket. So that is the game plan of NASA, which will take time because it's an intermediate step, going to the moon first, then orbiting it, and then creating a Mars rocket in orbit around the moon, and then off you go to Mars. Well, Elon Musk, as usual, is impatient. He wants to cut through all that. He wants to do it in one jump. That's right. Forget the orbiter. Forget the painstaking effort to go to the moon, build a rocket while you are orbiting around the moon. He wants to do it in one jump, and that's where the BFR rocket comes in. The BFR rocket is now called Starship, but it is a device designed to explore the entire solar system. It is an interplanetary rocket, a rocket that with a little bit of adjustment could go not just to Mars, but Jupiter and Saturn and the rest of the solar system. And what does BFR stand for? Well, B stands for big, R stands for rocket. And you can imagine what the F stands for. Well, uh, Elon Musk, realizing that he was getting a certain amount of publicity around the title, changed the name. The name of the rocket is now simply Starship. And so congratulations to SpaceX. They successfully tested on the fifth try a rocket that is designed to go to the moon and then on to Mars. Also, a lawsuit between billionaires is now causing a lot of feathers to fly. It turns out that NASA awarded a $2.9 billion contract to SpaceX to design a lunar lander. Now, let me explain. NASA wants to give money to Boeing to create the booster rocket to take astronauts sometime after 2024 to the moon. So that's the SLS booster rocket. But once you reach the moon, you have to have a second rocket to orbit around the moon and then land on the moon and then come back. That's the lunar orbiter. And the contract went to SpaceX. And of course, Elon Musk is the second richest man on Earth. Well, the richest man on Earth is Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon, and he was not happy at all. You see, he too has a space program, the Blue Origins Program. He too has plans for a moon rocket. In fact, he's heavily invested in space tourism. He has a rocket called the New Shepard, which is designed to take astronauts uh, up into the upper atmosphere and come back down, including tourists. That's right. In fact, he even announced that there's a lottery, a lottery, so you can bid, you can bid for a ticket to go up into outer space. Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. Stay tuned now for the second half of Exploration as we talk about a long shot. In other words, a solution to global warming could one day be fusion power. But is fusion power ready for prime time or is it just a pie in the sky? We'll talk about that in the second half of Exploration. So stay tuned. And if you want to know more about what I do, go to my website, mkaku.org, Mkaku.org .org is my website. And on Facebook, we have four and a half million fans on Facebook. Stay tuned. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of exploration. In the first part of exploration, we talked about the coronavirus and how we could be turning the corner, at least in the next few months to a year, could be turning the corner on the coronavirus. And also, we talked about the latest developments in outer space, Well, in the second half of exploration, we're going to say a few things about energy. How will we solve the whole question of global warming unless we can find an alternative to oil and coal? And so we'll talk about one of the leading candidates for that, and that is fusion power. Fusion power, of course, doesn't yet exist commercially, but the French are well on their way to perfecting the first operational fusion reactor, perhaps in this decade. And also, let me say a few things about my latest book. Once again, the book is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. And the question is, is it testable? Can we test this theory? Let me just quickly say the answer is yes. In fact, outside Chicago at Fermilab, they found an anomaly, anomaly which may signal the presence of new particles at higher and higher energies, new particles predicted by string theory. So that's one way to prove it. Another way is that, well, the Japanese, the Chinese, and the Europeans are already now in the process of bidding to create the next generation of particle accelerators, which may artificially produce some of these higher mass particles. And LISA was going to be sent into orbit in the coming years. That's a gravity wave detector in outer space. LISA, we think, is powerful enough to detect radiation from the instant of the Big Bang itself. And then we can compare that results with predictions from string theory, which also predicts exactly why there was a Big Bang to begin with. And then, of course, there's something called dark matter. Dark matter is invisible matter. It holds the galaxy together, and it's actually inside your room right now. But it's very rare, and it doesn't interact with light, so it's invisible. So that's why it's so difficult to detect. But physicists are hot on the trail of being able to detect dark matter in the laboratory, in cosmic rays, in which case we may be able to compare it with predictions in string theory. Well, anyway, let's move on, because in the second part of exploration, we're going to talk about global warming and what we can do about it, a dark horse called fusion power. Well, in the second half of exploration, we're now going to talk about energy. How will we find energy for the future that does not disrupt the atmosphere, triggering global warming? Well, science fiction writers for years have said the obvious choice is fusion power. But fusion power has been quite elusive. Every 20 years, we physicists solemnly say that in 20 more years, we will have fusion power, the power of the sun on the earth, limitless power from seawater. That's right, the hydrogen from seawater is the basic fuel for fusion reactors. Well, our best bet today is the ITER fusion reactor being built in France. The Europeans are footing the bill. It's going to cost $10 billion. $10 billion for the most advanced hot fusion reactor of its type, hoping to create energy. And again, you simply fuse the hydrogen in seawater, releasing enormous quantities of energy, We know in principle it works because that's how the sun works. The sun works by squeezing hydrogen until hydrogen fuses to create helium and enormous sums of energy. Well, what are the downsides? Well, on Earth we have fission reactors. Fission reactors built on splitting the uranium atom. It's quite messy. When you split the uranium atom, you create large quantities of nuclear waste. That nuclear waste is the energy of the meltdown. And it's also very dangerous and has to be separated from the environment for millions of years. And who can promise that? Well, the sun does not use fission power. In fact, to the best of our knowledge, we might be the only civilization in this sector of the galaxy which uses fission power rather than fusion power. However, fusion power doesn't yet exist. So let's hope that the French backing the ITER fusion reactor can get the fusion reactor up and running so that seawater will energize the future. Once again, our special guest today is Professor Charles Seif of NYU speaking about the prospects for fusion power. Uh, Professor Seif, um, you're a journalist. However, you've written about cosmology, and now you've written a new book called "Sun in a Bottle: The Strange History of Fusion and the Science of Wishful Thinking." So, how did you, as a journalist, get interested in things that most journalists avoid, like the plague?
1: Well, I have to say, I'm really a physics geek at heart. Um, back before I became a journalist, I studied physics and mathematics, and It was only fairly late in my education that I decided that I was more suited to writing than I was to actually performing uh, uh, scientific work. Mm -hmm. So even at the very beginning of my career, uh, I was uh, interested in writing about physics because that's what I loved. And so um, my career has been covering physics uh, for a decade and change. And uh, from the very beginning of the time that I was writing, uh, among my first pieces was a large piece about uh, fusion. and uh, Coming from the the physics point of view, I thought of this wonderful uh, thing which would solve the world's energy crises, and as a journalist approaching it, I saw that it was a little bit more complex than I I had initially expected with my physics goggles on.
0: Okay, well, let's just jump right into your book. Uh, Your book starts out at some of the hairiest days of the Cold War. In 1945, the United States drops a fission bomb on Hiroshima and another fission bomb on Nagasaki based on uranium and plutonium. But then in the 1950s, uh, a new race emerges, not with uranium and plutonium, but with the super, the hydrogen bomb. So explain to us what is the difference between the fission bombs that were dropped on Japan and the super, the hydrogen bomb
1: based on fusion? Well, fission and fusion are two sides of the same coin. In some sense, uh, every atom wants to be iron. It has iron envy. So things which are heavier than iron, like uranium and plutonium, want to split apart in the same sense that a ball wants to roll down a hill. And in the process of splitting apart, they release energy. Uh, Fusion, on the other hand, takes light elements. Light elements, in some sense, want to stick together and get heavier, getting closer to iron. Uh, It turns out that the fusion end of the reaction is more energetic per atom than fusion uh, than fission. That is, uh, breaking apart atoms gives you a lot of energy, but fusion uh, sticking them together gives you a lot, lot more. So, at the end of the Manhattan Project, um, when the project ended, um, they the United States had a bomb that used fission to power it. Up. In its simplest form, basically all it did was take two hunks of uranium, stick them together, and wham, you get an explosion. Um, So it was easy to do once you got the uranium material uh, to set off the reaction. Uh, Edward Teller, a physicist at the Manhattan Project, uh, was uh, very strongly in favor of using the other side of the coin, fusion, uh, because he realized that it would lead to a weapon of unlimited power, and he called it the super. And the idea, basically, was to use an explosion, a nuclear uh, a fission explosion, to set off a fusion explosion, which was much, much, much greater. And Teller was right. Um, the weapon that he eventually created was vastly more powerful than even what obliterated Hiroshima and Nagasaki. To give you a sense of scale, uh, Hiroshima was a, about a 14 kiloton explosion, the equivalent of 14,000 tons of TNT exploding in the same place at the same time. The first full fusion test called Ivy Mike um, uh, was 10 megatons, 10 million tons, almost 1,000 times larger than uh, Hiroshima. It evaporated the island it was on. And uh, that was just the beginning. In theory, you can make a fusion bomb as large as you want. Um, the biggest ever detonated was the Russian Tsar Bomba which was more than 50 megatons of TNT. And uh, after a certain point, it's, it's pointless to get larger because you just wind up uh, lifting a larger and larger column of atmosphere into, uh, into space, so it doesn't do that much more damage. Uh, so uh, even though it promised unlimited power, unless you wanted to destroy the Earth, it, it wasn't that much more effective uh, at uh, doing damage than a, uh, fu- uh, than a fission bomb. Uh, But at the same time, um, the Cold War was getting hot. The Russians had detonated their first nuclear weapon uh, way before Americans thought they could get it, uh, thanks in part to a spy operation uh, that penetrated Los Alamos. Uh, So a panicked America realized, uh, well, we have to get ahead of the Russians and uh, keep keep nuclear supremacy. So they turned to Edward Teller's idea of a super bomb as a way of staying ahead of the Russian nuclear weapon industry. And as we know, uh, the Russians caught up very, very quickly, and it turned into a nuclear stalemate where each side had so many weapons in their arsenal that they could destroy the world many times over.
0: And I should also point out that when I was in high school, uh, Edward Teller was actually my advisor. And he actually sort of guided my career in in the early years uh, when I was at Harvard. However, moving on now, uh, we have the Cold War in full swing. And people are now used to the idea that there is a bomb a thousand times more powerful than the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bomb. But other people have said, well, look at Mother Nature. Mother Nature uses fusion to light up the heavens. So now uh, explain to us how Mother Nature uses the process of fusion, not fission, to light up the universe.
1: Yes, it's it's fusion is responsible for all life on Earth. Um, the sun is essentially a big ball of hydrogen. It's hydrogen gas, uh, and when it was coalescing, uh, it was compressing itself under its own gravity. And collapsing, compressing object get hot in general. And so you've got this ball of hydrogen that got hot and dense, hotter and denser. And eventually it got so hot and so dense that the hydrogen, uh, moving extremely fast because of the energy uh, of the temperature, the, 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 the high temperatures involved, started slamming into each other with enough force to cause fusion reactions. So once you get a big ball of gas large enough uh, to collapse under its own gravity and heat each other, heat everything up uh, high enough, you get a fusion reaction. And the fusion reaction is what makes the sun shine. Uh, these hydrogens getting converted eventually into helium, release energy, and that energy shines out in all directions. That's what makes stars shine. But it's this reaction is extraordinarily difficult to get going. You need such an enormous ball of hydrogen um, to s- kickstart that fusion reaction uh, that it's it, It's hard to do. Um, Even a mass of hydrogen the size of Jupiter, Jupiter is almost like a star. The problem is it's not large enough to get so hot that you start that fusion reaction in its belly. So Jupiter is, in, in essence, everything that a star has except just that extra gravitational oomph to get it hot enough and tight enough to ignite
0: And, in fact, in the movie 2010, Arthur C. Clarke talks about uh, aliens igniting Jupiter, so our solar system becomes a double star system. However, Jupiter would have to be about 10 times bigger uh, at minimum in order to get uh, ignition. Now, let's talk about the promise, the promise of fusion. Why has fusion Um, hypnotize whole generations of inventors and quacks and top physicists. What is the promise of fusion? Why is there so much interest in it? Why have so many charlatans jumped into the game?
1: Imagine if you had a sun on your desktop, that in a little bottle you had a fusion reaction going. If you could get this, if you could have something like this, you basically have an unlimited source of energy. Um, Hydrogen is abundant. The most abundant element in the universe. It's everywhere. It's in the ocean. Uh, uh, water is two atoms of, of hydrogen from one atom of oxygen. So if you were able to tap into the sun's reaction and turn hydrogen into helium and releasing energy in the process, you can turn this un, virtually unlimited source of fuel into energy for free. And because the fusion reaction, if, if, you, if you manage to uh, Get it working in the right way, you could just keep feeding hydrogen in and helium and energy come out. And helium is clean. I mean, if you you wanted to, you could release it into the atmosphere and it would float up into space. Um, And so, this promises, in theory, um, unlimited energy with unlimited fuel and no waste. Reality is not quite as simple as that, but that is the promise.
0: Okay, and for Spider-Man fans, uh, for those people who saw Spider-Man 2, uh, Dr. Octopus creates fusion in his laboratory in Manhattan, which is not the place to do it. But the machine looks like a little sun. It looks like actually a star. and You can see uh, sunspots and solar flares on this miniature sun. However, in real life, uh, we don't expect to create a miniature sun like in Spider-Man 2. What will a fusion reactor really
1: look like? Well, there's two main areas that uh, mainstream fusion researchers are looking at to make a, a, a real fusion reactor, and they are lasers and magnets. Uh, lasers uh, are a very clever way of getting the heat and pressure that you need to take a hydrogen pellet and make it collapse and start fusing. Basically, you shine laser light at all from all directions, and you squash a tiny pellet and as it squashes, it compresses, uh, and hopefully it ignites. And if you manage to get lasers that are strong and efficient enough uh, that you create more energy uh, out of that collapsing, fusing, tiny pellet of hydrogen than you consume by getting the lasers going in the first place, then you've got a source of energy. You've got a, uh, a fusion reactor. Um, no one has gotten that far, but it is theoretically possible. Another method is using magnets. Uh, It turns out that magnetic fields uh, affect fusing plasmas like hydrogen. And if you shape a magnetic field right, you can create a bottle with which to contain a very hot uh, cloud of hydrogen. And so uh, a magnetic donut shaped right, and uh, with a cloud of hydrogen you throw heat in, eventually you might get a fusing plasma. And once you get that reaction going, you just have to figure out a way of uh, piping new hydrogen in and piping uh, fused helium out, and you've got a source of energy going. Again, uh, these uh, magnetic bottles aren't working to the point where you you get more energy out than you put in uh, heating the plasma and containing it. But in theory, uh, if our magnets improve and our, our knowledge improves over time, you might have a magnetic bottle... That contains a miniature sun.
0: Okay. Now, because a fusion machine would use ordinary seawater, which is limitless pretty much, as the basic uh, energy source, and because the energy released is almost limitless, the number of uh, charlatans and quacks that have gone into the business is quite large. So let's talk about some of the false starts and some of the dashed hopes. Uh, beginning with a Dr. Richter, but the list is long. Let's talk about some of the false starts.
1: Yes, it's the, the, the goal is so lofty, that the unlimited energy, that the idea of fusion has attracted uh, quacks and hoaxers and genuine scientists who are misguided uh, from the very beginning. Um, in 1951, the world was absolutely stunned to headlines that Argentina, of all places, had solved... Our energy problems forever. There was an ex, a German expat named Ronald Richter who had convinced Juan Peron to fund a research laboratory on a secret island in the middle of a lake uh, to get fusion reactions going in what he called a solar thermotron. Um, and he kept the world going for about a year. People were arguing back and forth. Could he have done it? Could he not have done it? It turns out Richter was uh, barking mad. Um, he uh, would get this wild look in his eyes, and dump a whole bunch of gunpowder into his experiment and blow the doors off of his laboratory in gigantic explosions, and rush out and write uh, fusion on a piece of ticker tape. Um, and yet, for many, for many, many months, he kept Juan Perón's government believing that uh, he was on his way to solving the world's energy crisis, and this would be a great prestige for Argentina. Uh, eventually. Uh, Physicists in Argentina convinced Perón that something was going on uh, that was a little fishy. They went and visited the, the laboratory with their own Geiger counters. And if, in fact, you have fusion reactions going, you should be able to detect neutron radiation coming off. And they detected nothing. So they proved that Ronald Richter was uh, perpetrating a fraud. And contemporary accounts say that he wasted between $4 million and $70 million of the Argentinian uh, treasury in the process of uh, pursuing his dream. Uh, And uh, he disappeared off the world stage very rapidly, as you can imagine. Um, But, in fact, uh, everyone who is involved in fusion in some form winds up deceiving themselves or deceiving others about their achievements. In 1958, um, British scientists uh, at a very, very prestigious lab built this machine called Zeta, Uh, Zeta was a magnetic bottle of sorts, and the scientists had convinced themselves that they had gotten fusion in a laboratory. And uh, they cracked open beers. They announced to the world that they were on their way to solving the world's energy crises. Um, Turns out that they were wrong, uh, that they were not seeing fusion, that they were deceiving themselves with uh, neutrons. They were seeing neutrons, but it wasn't from fusion that they wanted. Uh, so they had to humiliate themselves on the world stage. After all these tabloids say, said, uh, energy to last, last a lifetime, uh, no no more energy bills, the British teams had to say, well, uh, not really.
0: Okay. Now, more recently, uh, we had this huge fiasco concerning uh, two chemists, uh, Pons and Fleischmann, who grab world attention, Uh, covers of, I think, Newsweek magazine and the New York Times, and everyone was talking about, well, did Pons and Fleischmann create fusion in a bottle? Not hot fusion, the hot fusion of lasers and magnets, but cold fusion. So tell us a little bit about cold fusion. Yes,
1: yes. In in 1989, two chemists, uh, one of whom was extremely uh, uh, well-celebrated, made this announcement to the press that absolutely stunned the world. They claimed that where these hot fusion, this magnetic fusion, this laser fusion uh, research has been failing for years, wasting tens of billions of dollars, these two chemists uh, working independently had spent $100,000, and they had solved the problem. And what they argued was that they managed to pipe hydrogen into a chunk of metal, a palladium, which has the interesting property that soaks up hydrogen like a sponge. And the theory was that if you get enough hydrogen in there, uh, the hydrogen will be forced so close together that they might be forced to fuse. And in doing the research on their own, they thought they saw more energy coming out of their palladium cell than was going in. So they thought they had created a device which was creating fusion energy. So as you can imagine, as soon as this was announced, it was headlines everywhere, cover of Time, cover of Newsweek, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, everywhere was talking about this for months and months and months. Um, It turned out that the scientists were deceiving themselves. Uh, There was a bit of fishiness. Uh, Some data was moving back and forth. It's uncertain exactly what was going on, but it went the cells were reproduced in better circumstances with more sophisticated equipment, it turned out that there was no excess energy, and more importantly, there were no neutrons coming out. turns out when you fuse heavy forms of hydrogen together, you expect neutrons to fly away, and neutrons are a sign of fusion. They were seeing no neutrons, and that made it pretty clear that nothing was actually happening. However, it took... These, these uh, It was a huge battle for, for years. It, uh, physicists versus chemists became a red state versus blue state thing, uh, where the liberal elite physicists on the East Coast were trying to tear down research from chemists at the University of Utah. Uh, so it became a huge political battle that still affects the physics community on some level.
0: Now, you can simply calculate using the back of an envelope, the uh, neutron, count that would occur if they really had fusion in a bottle, and it's sufficient to kill them. So the very fact that pons and Fleischmann are still alive uh, means that they could not possibly have attained fusion in a bottle. But then the question is, well, what did they attain? They did get net energy coming out. That's been verified by different laboratories. Some people have gone back to the literature on palladium back in the 1800s. It turns out that a person applied for a patent for one of the first cigarette lighters, He used palladium, put it in water, and attained a net amount of energy, which he used to light a flame. And he got a patent for it, uh, a palladium uh, cigarette lighter. And some people think that that's what they discovered. Well, what are your thoughts? It's been several years since then. What did Pons and Fleischmann really have in their bottle that gave energy? Was it a cigarette lighter or, or what?
1: It's really hard to tell. Palladium has an extraordinarily interesting chemistry. Uh, it has been fooling researchers for years, as you've, as, as you've noted. That and not only is there that patent, uh, a number uh, in the early 20th century, two researchers uh, thought they had achieved fusion in palladium, and uh, because they, they came to were thinking along the same lines as Pons and Fleischmann were, and they thought they detected helium inside an excess of helium inside. Palladium, uh, which would be a nice sign of fusion because you're creating helium. It turns out that they were deceiving themselves because it turns out uh, palladium soaks up helium just as well as it soaks up hydrogen. So you have enriched helium. So if they were seeing excess energy, and it's not entirely clear from the setup of the experiment that they were—I mean, they certainly thought they were. There was some sloppiness, um, but it's certainly possible that they they were seeing it. It would most likely be a a matter of chemistry, a chemical reaction where bonds are breaking, uh, rather than a nuclear reaction uh, where bonds in the center of a nucleus are being formed, that, that uh, uh, the nuclear bonds that change atoms into other atoms uh, are what are changed in a fusion reaction, as opposed to the attachments between atoms, which are chemical. almost certainly was a chemical reaction. And chemical reactions are well-studied, and there's only so much you can do for solving the world's energy uh, problems with chemical reactions. In fact, burning gasoline is an extraordinarily efficient chemical reaction that allows us to power...
0: I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. Our special guest today was Charles Seif, author of the book Sun in a Bottle. And also, check out my website. My website is mkaku.org, m k a k u.org, and find out how you can order my latest bestseller, The God Equation The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Find out by going to my website. Also, check out my Facebook site. We have four and a half million fans on Facebook. So once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku for Exploration. Good day.